Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 14, with Pastor John King. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for coming out. What a, well, the air conditioner is working good in here today, too. I noticed. Uh, so here we are. AC time, right? It's starting to turn that on. It comes on more often than the heat, and then sometimes, you know, you cycle back and forth for the next month or so. That'll be our, our fun time with that. But uh, yeah, I just want to say as well, we did have a, a real uh, amazing time yesterday for Love Life. Uh, we're going to continue to partner with Love Life as the Lord leads us. And there'll be more opportunities, of course, for people to join. I know it's a long drive, but it's worth it. And as well, we're going to support our local crisis pregnancy center. So you're going to hear us talk a lot more about that in the, in the years to come, Lord willing. Um, but... Uh, Anyway, uh, today we're going to go ahead and turn to chapter 7 of Daniel. We're going to start out chapter 7 of Daniel. And if you'll note to yourself that this is sort of a dividing line, if you, if you will, between Daniel's narrative, the historical narrative, and the prophetic. So we're in the, you know, this is why people like the book of Daniel, the people that enjoy prophecy. Uh, this is one of the reasons why, because Daniel 7 and the rest of the the whole uh, book of Daniel centers around amazing, accuracy, accurate prophecy, unbelievably accurate prophecy. And so, uh, but we do recall uh, last week, we, we kind of read from our scripture and we saw the miracle of God delivering Daniel from the jaws of lions. You know, the Lord's deliverance is powerful. And having witnessed this supernatural act by God, we heard again from another powerful leader. That was Darius the Mede. He honored God with an official decree instructing all people under his dominion to, quote, tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. He was so moved by what happened, he ordered his people that they were to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. But this week, as I said, we're going to go ahead and start with the uh, first of four of Daniel's prophetic visions. Um, concerning what? Well, it's concerning the history and the destiny of the nations that are leading up to Jesus' return. Keep in mind, we're going to be looking at the history of the nations and the destiny of the nations. You see, God has it all planned out, whether we believe it or not, whether we see it in the world around us, God has everything planned out for His glory and His purpose. But chronologically speaking, um, well, we'll come back to that because really what we're doing is we're taking a step back between uh, chapter 5 and, and uh, 6 and 7. Or excuse me, 4. Anyway, I'll figure that out here as we go along. <laughs> but keep in mind, uh, Matthew 6.10, we see Jesus taught how to pray. and We'll revisit this a little later. We, we teach our children from the youngest of age to say, your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And sometimes those are just words that you sing before you go to sleep at night or whatever. I remember doing it in the, in the, when I joined the Coast Guard. It was an amazing time for me because I joined the Coast Guard and here they take all these people from all walks of life and they shave all their hair off and put them in a room with bunk beds. <laughs> you know, bunk beds are cool, right? Those of you that have been in the military. And every night, in that summer of 1977, somebody would initiate the Lord's Prayer. And we would all say it. 
Right? You know, I mean, and it was just, you know, after a day of, of persecution, <laughs> it was a wonderful thing to be able to read, just say the Lord's Prayer because everybody knew it by heart back in those days. Uh, I guess I'm a little bit old now, aren't I? But anyway. But keep in mind that these visions give us a clearer understanding of that God is in control of, of this unfolding history, if you will. And that ultimately he will return to establish his kingdom on earth. So we have a wonderful day really ahead of us. Despite what's going on in the world, we're going to read about this destiny of the nations, but we're also going to take communion together because we're going to remember what he did. Because we need that encouragement, amen? amen? So we're going to cover chapter 7 in two parts. Today we're going to look at the four Gentile kingdoms from chapter 2, described here as beasts, rising in succession from the great sea of humanity. We will also start to look at a coming world leader, described in Daniel's uh, passages as one with eyes like, a man, like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. So we're going to see that. So before I, you know, I'm just, I'm talking too much. Let's read the scripture, okay? Verse uh, 1 of chapter 7, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. little nursery rhyme for you. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said to it thus, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth and was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched then because the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. And for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven. 
He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Heavenly Father, thank you that we know by your word, by what you've told us, that you are in charge, you're in control of all things, both past, present, and future. And so, Lord, we need the encouragement today in a world that's torn up by war and strife, moral chaos. We need the encouragement today as your sons and daughters, as we sit under your word today, and as we take in your truth, the truth of your scriptures. Lord, please fill us. Please fill us with your Holy Spirit that we could put aside the things that are worrying us and the things that have got us distracted so that we can concentrate on for what you have for us, Lord, that you can speak to our hearts as only you can, so that we can bring glory to your name by the works that we do. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you. Go before us now. We pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, here we have Daniel's prophetic dream. Daniel's prophetic dream. And it says here in the first verse, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So the story takes us back to between chapters 4 and 5. Daniel's vision occurred in the first year of King Belshazzar's reign. Now remember that Belshazzar was the ruling co-regent, we just talked about him, under his father uh, Nabonidus, and they reigned from 553 to 539 B.C., And then this particular vision, of course, then was given to Daniel around 553 B.C. Now some commentators believe that the order was chosen, in other words, having to step back, you know, kind of backwards a little bit in the chronology, that the order was chosen in order to keep Daniel's prophetic dreams in sequence, as we see in uh, chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 through 12. So that may have been the reason why the writer arranging the book of Daniel did that. And notice it says, Daniel, that he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. The main facts. The sum of the matters, if you have a King James Version. And he wrote it down, and this is a good instruction for us. He recorded what he saw in the dream. So as you're studying your Bible, when you get your quiet time with the Lord, it's a real good idea to, I'm I'm saying to myself, it's a real good idea to write down, to take notes. Maybe, you know, sometimes the Lord, you know, sometimes it's good to have that pen in your hand and that journal open as you read the word. I mean, you're all by yourself. Nobody's going to make fun of you, right? So you can do that if you're, if you're, if you're in this mode of saying, Lord, I want to hear from you. And sometimes he will spark, uh, you know, just these little nuggets, little nuggets of truth that can take you through the day. But for this, in this case, Daniel was called to be a prophet. And so he was going to write down the main things, the sum of all matters. And it says, I saw in my vision by night, and behold. Now Daniel certainly recognized how important his vision was. And keep in mind that both Daniel and then King, earlier King Nebuchadnezzar experienced visions. We've been going through Daniel, so you know that. But there was a difference between the two, in a sense. Nebuchadnezzar's vision, had, they served two purposes. They would reveal God's sovereignty over the earth's kings and kingdoms, and portray Daniel, or excuse me, portray God 
as the revealer of mysteries. You know, mysteries are only revealed to us, spiritually speaking, when God chooses to reveal them. That's why Paul would say the mystery unfolding in the New Testament about Jesus and the Messiah. And so you see that in Nebuchadnezzar's visions, but Daniel's visions are focused on the unfolding of history and its effects on the nation Israel. And which gives a great problem for those who, who see no you know, future use for the nation Israel in prophecy. It creates a very great problem when you read through these. But we believe that Israel is very important in God's plan and future. Amen. <clears throat> and another thing we're going to notice here as we go through Daniel's dream sequences is that he's going to need an interpreter. He won't be able to interpret himself like he interpreted for others. And he says, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. I, I thought I was hearing those the other night. You guys wake up about 3 o'clock in the morning. I was like, Lord, that's the four winds of heaven <laughs> you have unleashed. There was, a, there was a storm, in this case, blowing from the four cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west. And you had the great sea. Now, this is literally to be understood for the people there. And that day, the great sea to them was the Mediterranean Sea. And in prophetic scripture, though, it is also understood as the turbulent sea that represents humanity. The turbulent sea of humanity. The peoples, the nations, and the kingdoms that rise out of the sea of humanity. Isaiah 57, 20. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Revelation 13, 1. And then I stood on the stand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. So this sea of humanity gives rise to these great kingdoms, and of course the final one before Jesus comes back with the Antichrist. Other scriptures tell us, one writer, other scriptures tells us that the angels control, the angels of heaven control the four winds and that one day they will be set loose, the winds, to execute God's judgment on earth. And you'll see that in Revelation 7, 1 and 9. So Daniel's vision was of God's judgment churning up the great sea of corrupt humanity and the corrupt nations of the world. That's, that's what he's, he's part of what he's seeing. And notice we start right away in verse 3. We see the four great beasts. The first of the four great beasts. And he said in verse 3, Four great beasts came up from the sea. So as we said, humanity gives rise to these empires, of course. But notice that each is different from the other. They're changed. They're diverse. And we remember, and so we're going to review this today, we remember in chapter 2 that King Nebuchadnezzar had his own very startling vision of these four Gentile kingdoms, but they were represented in the form of a giant statue. You recall that the, the giant statue in chapter 2, you had the head of gold which rep represented Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar's empire, if you will, was from 625 to 539 B.C. The chest and arms, actually I think it's 605, but anyway. The chest and arms of silver represented the reign of the Medes and Persians, which Daniel lived to see. Daniel lived to see these things. 
And they would reign from 539 to 331 BC. And then you had the bronze belly and the thighs of the statue representing the Grecian Empire. Alexander the Great, from 331 to 146 BC, nearly 200 years, did the Grecian Empire rule over that part of the world, which was at the time most of the world. And then, of course, we remember the statue had legs of iron, and that was the fourth kingdom, which was represented by Rome. Rome was to dominate the world for about 600 years. Four significant features of this fourth kingdom, because we need to see them. In fact, uh, Daniel 2, verses 40 through 43. I think we have that scripture. There it is. Let's go through that really quick. Notice in verse 40 that the fourth kingdom will crush all opposing powers with its iron fist. The fourth kingdom, though, will be a divided empire, a federation of nations at the end of its history, which was true of Rome, and it's also true of the extension of Rome into our modern day. This is represented by the feet and ten toes that were part iron and part clay. They don't adhere together. They may be together under one, uh, you know, one common purpose, so to speak, but they don't work well together. They can't stick together. And it will also have parts, the fourth kingdom will also have parts in verse 42, nations that are as strong as iron and others that are as weak as clay. And then finally in verse 43, the fourth kingdom will be a mix of people who will not remain united any more than the iron mixed with the clay. So we have this vestige, this remnant today of the ancient Roman Empire still in place in Europe. You know, you can call it NATO, you can call it EU, whatever you want to say about it. You see the conflict that's going over there right now. There's a lot of diversity in those nations. They don't really adhere together very well. You see it. You see it. And of course, the United States has played a role since World War II uh, that, that we're always trying to get out of. Because it's, it's a mess. And so when, when the Antichrist shows up someday, we won't be here. He's going to find a way to make them all work together a little bit better. In fact, a lot better. Because their common enemy is going to be the nation Israel. But here we see in Daniel's dream, we look at these four kingdoms again. And we know that these are four kingdoms because if you took a sneak peek to next week's verse, verse 17, you would see those great beasts which this is when the dream is now being interpreted, which we'll do next week. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. Now let's look at them. The first of them, verse 4. The first was like a lion, yet it had eagle's wings. This beast represented the Babylonian empire, as did the head of gold in the huge statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It's the same kingdom. And Daniel said, I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. The lion was injured, in other words. Its wings were plucked off and it was made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. Now you remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar when he wouldn't humble himself before God. In all of his pride, he looks over all of Babylon and says, look at this wonderful place that I built. And right, you know, as the words came out of his mouth, he was taken out of his throne. And he would spend seven years eating the grass like the oxen. So this, this is a clear symbol of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity and his loss of power due to his sinful pride. His refusal to acknowledge the Lord as sovereign God of the universe. Do you see men like that in today's world? 
You bet you do. You bet you do. And they will meet their maker. They will meet the God of heaven someday. However, Daniel saw the lion lifted from the ground, standing upright like a man, writes one man. Uh, and he says, and the heart, was, the heart of man was given to it. This is a picture of Nebuchadnezzar actually being healed and restored to the throne and given a human, more compassionate heart. Remember, there was a good story, a good ending for Nebuchadnezzar. But despite Nebuchadnezzar's restoration to the throne and his great rule over Babylon, that empire eventually fell. That golden empire, here represented by a lion. But then notice in verse 5, and suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, like a bear. Another devouring creature that would maul and crush its prey. This bear was represented by the Medo-Persian Empire that actually conquered Babylon. And, and we read it, and we see that Daniel actually witnessed this himself. But notice suddenly, behold, remember how quickly that Belshazzar, this, this prideful king, was taken out of office? You know, here he was throwing this great feast with all these people and partying while the city of Babylon was surrounded by the Medo-Persian army. And then by, by the end of the night, he was taken out. You know, they were trying, he was freaked out by the handwriting on the wall. It was a very sudden takeover. And notice that as he describes the detail, interesting detail, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. Now, ancient writers would notice this. They have observed, and some of you who hunt, that bears can be the most ferocious of all wild beasts when they're deprived of food or their offspring. You know the, the mama bear thing? <laughs> I guess it's real. And so a bear, when he's hungry or when he's angry, he or she, they can be very ruthless and very ferocious. So the characteristics of this kingdom, writes Barnes, is that it would be denoted by the bear would be a kingdom of ferocity and roughness and fierceness in war, especially when they were provoked. A spirit less manly and noble than was denoted by the lion. You know, King Nebuchadnezzar was more regal. Severe in its treatment of enemies with a mixture of fierce and savage cunning, he said. And notice it says he was raised up on one side. This may, this may be an a reference to the alliance between the Medes and the Persians. Because with the, the alliance with the Medes and the Persians, the Persians were the more powerful group of this now mixed kingdom. It wasn't a pure monarchy anymore. And it had three ribs in its mouth. Again, many believe that this is symbolic of three, not all of, but three of some of the major conquests that Cyrus, the king of Persian, Persia, had. He conquered Lydia in 546 B.C. He conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. And he conquered Egypt in 525 B.C. You know, as they took over the world again as a second world kingdom. And it says, And they said thus to it, Arise and devour much flesh. You know, those that were part of this kingdom were watching them trample over all these other nations. They're like, go after more. Get some more. You know, expand the empire and its cruel conquests. But that doesn't last long either, does it? Verse 6, As I looked, there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. Now this represents the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great, one of the greatest generals in all of history. 
And the image of four wings, it was said that his rapid expansion, this young ruler conquered the entire Medo-Persian Empire in only 10 years. And in ancient times, that's a short time. That's a very short time. They didn't have aircraft. They had big ships of sea. And it says that the beast, so he was swift. That swiftly, you know, he swiftly went and he took, when you look at maps, you can pull up maps of all these empires. You can just see it. It's amazing reading. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. Now, Alexander the Great died at 323 BC at the young age of 32. And his sudden death left no heir to his throne. So ultimately, the four major generals divided the empire. These four heads were Greece and Macedonia. They were controlled by a general Antipater and Cassander. Then you had Tharse and Asia Minor. They were controlled by a general named Lysimachus. Syria and Babylon and much of the Middle East were controlled by Seleucus. And Egypt and Palestine were controlled by Ptolemy. And so these four heads were then given dominion. And we're going to see more of this empire. It's going to come up again in chapter 8. So the Bible, interestingly, has a lot to say about certain world leaders, Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, etc. Notice in verse 7 it says, But after this, so now we've gone through the three kingdoms, now here we are. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong. Unlike the lion, the bear, and the leopard, this beast was like nothing Daniel had ever seen before. He, he couldn't even try to attach an animal figure from the wild to this crazy-looking beast. It was dreadful and terrible. In other words, scary and mighty. How strong? Exceedingly strong. It was exceedingly strong. And it had huge iron teeth. And it was devouring and breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet just like a monster. Huge iron teeth. Teeth in the Bible are often used as symbols of cruelty or of devouring an enemy. We, you've heard the proverb, Proverb 30, 14. It says, there is a generation whose teeth are like swords and whose fangs are like knives to devour the poor off the earth and the needy from among them. King David used the word to denote the cruelty of tyrants. Several passages, we're not going to put them up. Psalm 3, 7, old uh, King James, Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly, as he cries out to God. Psalm 57, 4, Whose teeth are spears and arrows. And Psalm 58, 6, Break their teeth in their mouth. Break out the great teeth of the young lions. So Daniel is describing, or excuse me, David and Daniel also both are describing this um, Scary, huge, powerful, devouring type of kingdom. And it was different from all the beasts, he writes, that were before it. Notice we said they were all different. Because it had ten horns, which was, makes it very unique from previous empires. Ten horns. So this, this, this number ten and these ten in a confederation of, 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 of countries... And we need to see, uh, one, one writer puts it this way. It says, throughout scripture, horns are often used to symbolize kings and rulers, kingdoms, or royal authority. But also, the angel who later explained the vision to Daniel definitely identified the horns as kingdoms, 
by, you'll see verses 24 and 26 in next year, next year and next week. But we notice that the horns that sit upon the head of the fourth beast, it suggests two things to us. The horns or confederation of states are a mere extension of the beast, the Roman Empire. Again, we, we see the vestiges of the Roman Empire. When you go to Europe, what do you want to see? You want to see the old Roman ruins, the old Grecian ruins. ruins. And the horns would be used to gore its victims as it conquers the nations of the world. And also keep in mind, this writer says that the horns correspond to the, the legs and ten tones of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. So here you have, you know, this comparison. You see how scripture sort of, you know, lays things out for us. But notice in verse 8, we see another horn, another horn. So Daniel's got this, he's having this vision. Uh, and, and, you know, most of us, when we have dreams or visions, we don't have this detail locked in very well. I know some people have very detailed dreams. I tend not to remember much. So I guess we're all different. But he was, he says, I was considering the horns. In other words, I'm, I'm staring at this, this, this is different. You know, I get, I've, you know, maybe he's thinking I've seen a couple of these empires already as well. But I'm looking at this one and it's like, he says, I, I saw another horn, a little one coming up among them. You know, rut row. Uh, what's going on here? And so he's like, there was a little horn. What is it, Daniel? What is this little horn? He said, well, it's a little one coming up among them. Now, this is a very derogatory uh, view when you call somebody small or little. And there are some, I, I have to be fair, there are some that view this little horn, this, this usurper, uh, who would grow into a powerful... They, they equate this with uh, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, who was uh, in the prior, just prior, during the 400 years uh, between um, Malachi and the Gospels, and, the, and John the Baptist. And he did go in, and he, he caused a revolt to happen in Israel called the Maccabean Revolt. And he did some terrible things in the temple, and he desecrated the temple. So some people think that this, this is simply just referring to him. Antiochus Epiphanes. And I believe I'm of, I'm of the, the camp and others uh, who are, would say that this is actually the coming Antichrist. You know, there'd be many Antichrists in history, but the, this is really a picture of the coming Antichrist, this one that Daniel's seeing here. It was small at first and had an obscure origin, but gradually over time it was increasing its strength. Not like a change of a dynasty. You know, these changes that happen. And as we've seen in these other succeeding kingdoms, he kind of sneaks in. And it says, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. So this, this Antichrist is rising up. This kingdom is rising up. And along the way, it's taken out whoever might come against him right away by the roots, destroying them. Became aggressive and uprooted three nations. But notice he says, and there... In this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Yeah, that's strange, isn't it? That would be, oh. <laughs> no, no, no wonder he would say rut row if, if, if it, he would. Like, what is, what is this? Something's going on here. And this mouth speaking pompous words, uh, rab, rabain, you know, speaking great things, arrogant, boastful, prideful. 
That's a dangerous combination. That could help you not get reelected for president. Sorry. We'll see about this uh, next, uh, not this, what I just said. But further, we'll see about this in uh, verse 25 of next week. Daniel was describing three very significant features about this little horn. First, the little horn uprooted three horns, as we said, which means that the Antichrist will conquer three of the nations that belong to the Federation of the Ten Nations. The word uprooted suggests that the Antichrist will forcefully, violently overthrow these nations. Also notice that the little horn had piercing eyes of a man that could scan the horizon, observe, gain knowledge, and become more and more intelligent. Third, the little horn spoke boastfully against the Most High God, which suggests that he was arrogant and self-exalting. And he will fill the world with his boasting, cursing, and blasphemy. And with the, today's technology, you, know, you might, might have said, well, you know, he could do that in, when the kingdoms were, when the, uh, the population of the world was relatively small you know, and concentrated in certain areas. But now we, we know we have the technology for this to happen. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4, Paul writes now clearly, uh, you know, many, many hundreds of years later, he writes, uh, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away, the day is the day of the Lord, and that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and then the man of sin is revealed. Now the falling away speaks of a great apostasy among the church in the last days, right at the end. And the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And the book of Revelation describes that very clearly. So when we compare Scripture with Scripture, the little horn here that we're talking about in this particular passage is clearly identified, I believe, as the Antichrist. But then... By verse 9, things shift radically. You, now we're going to have a whole new setting. We're going to be, Daniel's vision now shifts to the heavenly court. He, had, he was, you know, had the vision of the world and the Antichrist. Now he's shifting to the heavenly court. Look what he says in verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. And the Ancient of Days is a title for God, God the Father, in fact. Thrones were put in place. Now, King James, if you have a King James version here today, you're, you got the only version that says thrones were cast down. All the other versions, uh, translations say that thrones were actually set or put in place. So throw away that King James, but no, just kidding. Um, but this is consistent with God uh, allowing his saints to judge. What, what are we talking about? You see, we see as God is always going to be the judge. We know he's the supreme judge, and whoever he allows to judge is because God allowed it to happen. But we are going to be part of his, his saints. As his saints, we are going to be in a position to judge. Look at Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said this to the disciples. He said, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, the second coming of Jesus. You who have followed me will also sit on 12, excuse me, this is not the second coming, this is Jesus in heaven. He says, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, 
judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and we have several other passages we don't have time to cover. But we're going to judge angels. We're going to, you know, there's a lot of things that God's saints are going to be put in a position to do by his authority. We're going to actually judge uh, the nations and judge angels and judge the tribes of Israel. Now here we have this, uh, ver this word, ancient of days. It's an expression applied to God or Jehovah three times in the vision of Daniel. We'll see it in verse 13 and 22. In the sense of eternal, in eternality, if that was such a word, which it isn't, eternal, the sense of eternal. In contrast with all earthly kings, his days, God himself, the ancient of days, are past calculating. They're past reckoning. Job 36, 26, he says, Behold, God is great, and we do not know him, nor can the number of his years be discovered. In other words, you can't just try to figure him out. The Bible reveals who he is, and we will, he's, he's going to be exalted. He should be exalted by now in our hearts. But we, are, we don't get to kind of, you know, define him. He's that great. He's that great. We know in our relationship to God through Jesus, we have a lot of ways to define him as our loving father. We, we do have a lot of ways. I'm not saying we can't. It's the thing is, is like we don't get to put him in a place, in a category, like another thing, if, it, if you were. Uh, like a man can sort of put God in a, a little book and say, well, that's God. Go read about it if you want to. It's not the way it works. His garment was white as snow, and his hair of his head was pure wool, pure and undefiled. He was a divine majesty. This is typical clothing for heavenly beings. We see it all through. Revelation 1.14, the description given to Jesus, his hair and head, excuse me, his head and hair were like white wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His throne, back to our passage, his throne was a fiery flame and its wheels had burning fire. Fire is a motif that's used for divine presence, the presence of God, which is why we need heavenly bodies because our bodies would burn up. We couldn't handle it to be in God's presence truly. In Ezekiel 1, the prophet has a, an interesting vision of God. It says, Ezekiel 1.4, Then I looked and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north and a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself. And brightness was all around and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber and out of the midst the fire. David Guzik writes this, he says, Many commentators say that the ancient eastern world, in the ancient eastern world, royal thrones were actually always, almost always on wheels so they could be moved. Yet this is just as likely that they represent the endless activity of God, he writes. And you and I, we see the image of fire, we see the image of smoke all throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, from the flaming swords of the cherubim that prevented Adam and Eve from trying to re-enter the garden, to God's presence on Mount Sinai, God's presence in the tabernacle and the temple, all the way into the New Testament, Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. You remember the day of Pentecost. God's presence was manifested. It says, when the day of Pentecost had finally come, in Acts 2, there it is, um, says, uh, had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as if of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. 
And one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now a lot of people want to focus on the speaking of, of tongues or speaking in tongues. But notice the presence of God, the wind, the fire, the mighty, the mighty presence of God. And notice also that they were, kind of, they were in unity. You know, it's important to be in unity, folks. When, the, when a church starts to splinter and divide and have problems within itself, um, it, it, it tends to push away and quench the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. says here in verse 10 that a fiery stream issued and he came, and again, he's got this heavenly vision, a fiery stream issued and came forth before him and a thousand thousands ministered to him. Now when you see these numbers put up and you try, you know, you can take your calculator out and you go, oh, a thousand thousands. Uh, I wonder what that is. Oh, I can do 10,000 times 10,000. That's a hundred million. I can do that. This is, a, this is a symbolic, this is a figure of speech, if you will, for a whole bunch of angels in heaven. You will not be able to count them. They're going to have a full house. They're going to have a full worship service for all of eternity. Nobody will be out sick. But notice also, he also has a vision of judgment. He sees judgment. It says the court was seated and the books were opened. Now, Revelation 20.12 speaks of the judgment of God coming. Revelation 20, it says, And I saw the dead small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works and by the things which were written in the books. So he's getting a, a vision of the future in heaven, the final uh, judgment day, the great white throne judgment. And this, is, this needs to be in our hearts and our minds when we're scared to witness to people, when we're afraid to tell our loved ones about Jesus. We need to remember that there will be a day when all will stand, both you know, young and great, old and uh, young. Everybody will stand before the Lord in, to be judged if their, books, their names are not uh, written in the book of life. And finally, in our last three verses of today, verses 11 through 14, we see the final kingdom. You know what? The church has been praying for all these centuries. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But he still has this vision, verse 11, he says, But I watched, because the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking, I watched till the beast was slain and its body was destroyed, given to the burning flame. The Antichrist and the false prophet will be cast into hell. And I watched then because the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. This Antichrist will not go down without a fight. He will be defiant right to the end. He will go from fame to flame. But notice in verse 12 it says, For the rest of the beast, these, these world kingdoms that are in existence when Jesus comes to set his own kingdom, they're referred to as beasts that have risen out of the, the seas of humanity, they will have their dominion taken away. These nations that are here, when Jesus comes to set up the thousand-year millennial reign, the nations will bow down to Christ. There will no longer be these sovereign nations. 
They will bow down to our Lord because it says their lives were pro prolonged for a season and a time. At Jesus' second coming, he will set up his kingdom on earth and no longer will man try to mess up their governance of society. We know that man can't govern himself. Just read the papers or the, the media. <laughs> Just read it. And so verses 13 and 14, real quick, we're going to talk a lot about this next week. You have the fifth and the final kingdom of Jesus' return. It says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like a son of man. Now, the son of man, this was Jesus' favorite self-designation. This is how Jesus referred to him more than any other way. And we saw it all through the book of Mark. In fact, the Gospels alone, in the Gospels alone, Jesus is referred to as the son of man over 80 times. And notice he's coming with the clouds of heaven. And we, want to be, we want to be encouraged because he's coming back. Revelation 1.7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And then, of course, he was, to him was given dominion and glory to all peoples, nations, and languages to serve him. His, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not be passed away. So Daniel had this dramatic scene. He had this dramatic vision recorded here for us today. And it's, it's verified over and over again through the prophetic scriptures that we have in Revelation and all throughout the Bible. Jesus will receive the kingdoms of the earth because of his atoning, just like our salvation, because of his atoning death on the cross, because he died for the sins of man and all humanity, God the Father will reward Jesus Christ with rulership over all the nations and all of humanity and all of creation, which he helped to create. After Jesus' death on earth, he ascended into heaven. Now he sits at the right hand of God the Father right now, interceding on our behalf. Wherever you are, he's interceding on your behalf. He sits at the right hand of God the Father, the Ancient of Days. And he will remain there until he comes in the clouds of glory as he returns to establish his kingdom on earth. And that day, friends, is coming. Just know it. That day is coming. So as we get ready to transition to communion, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you for our time in your word today. I pray that it would bear much fruit in my heart and in the hearts of all who hear, knowing that your word never returns void. Thank you, Lord, that you give us a future and a hope. And go before us now as we partake of communion together pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.